Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 130. Did I get it? You did. It's 130, which is, it's not even worth checking. Not prime. This is Brett Weinstein. Dr. Brett Weinstein, Dr. Heather Hying, at your service. We are here going to sort through uh, many a thing, is what I'm imagining. Yep. We're coming to you early this week. Uh, Brett and our younger son have a plane to catch. So um, so here we are. We're not going to do a Q&A this week. We are going to start with announcements before launching into a discussion of some of what's going on in Portland, some of what's going on in the LGBTQ community, possibly, given that it's Pride Month. And uh, and Brett is going to uh, do a sort of a larger level analysis, as is your want, as is something that I say and always wonder what exactly it means when I say it. <laughs> I think it means that I want to do it, although you're going to tell me it's spelled differently. No, it's, is that right? it's spelled differently. It's oh. not the same thing. Well. Yeah. No, we, and, we've, and we've had that conversation, too. So, you know... These last two years are, are very Groundhog Day in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of that. There's been a lot of that. Yeah. There's been a lot of that. Yeah. So um, we actually had a lot of fun this week. Um, believe it or not, we had a lot of fun this week doing many, many hours, uh, almost 10 hours of um, interviews for the Spanish language edition of Hunter Gatherer's Guide, which we don't have a copy of yet, so I can't, I can't show it to you, but it's out. It's published. Uh, and uh, there's about to be a lot of media coverage in Spain and in Spanish language newspapers, uh, wherever wherever those are available. On you the can internet. hold up the French one, and the people who are listening on audio only wouldn't know the difference. That's true. That's true. That's yeah. true. And I I forgot to pull up um, what it is in Spanish. And even though my Spanish pronunciation isn't perfect, I'd be perfectly happy to say it, but I don't remember offhand. Um, but anyway, the um, the journalists were fantastic. Uh, we had a translator because our Spanish is unfortunately not even close to good enough to to do these things in Spanish. Uh, the translator who was working with us on behalf of the Spanish publisher was outstanding. Uh, it was just it was it was an, a lens into uh, Spanish culture and Spain is not a place that either of us have been. We spent a lot of time in Latin America, but never been to Spain, and it was it was truly remarkable. Yes, and the yeah. interviews uh, were sin pelo en la lengua. That's the Spanish idiom for it means no hair on the tongue, but it means straightforward, direct. I think otherwise, I've said something <laughs> lewd, but I believe that's how you say uh, that they were directed to the point. We will find out in the comments almost immediately. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure. I, so I didn't, I don't know if that idiom is correct. I didn't know it if it is. And I'm not sure I would describe the interviews that way if it is. So I'm sort of, I'm three stages deep of not being sure how to proceed. Can we agree uh, that the interviews were sin monos en la cabeza? Oh, why are you doing this? <laughs> I don't know. Just going to uh, come off sounding like complete idiots. No, I don't think so. I, Without monkeys on the head? Monkeys on the brain, sure. Brain is different, but okay. <laughs> it's close enough. <laughs> People are very generous when you try to speak their language in earnest. That has been my experience. It's true, but it's rather different when you're actually speaking to a mostly English-speaking audience in half-ass Spanish. Well, I was hoping they'd be impressed. Now I think they're likely not to be, but... Oh, and and it, that's on me. No, you know, an effort was made. An <laughs> effort was made. All right. Um, yeah, so that was um, that was great. And uh, yes, we've been hearing from a lot of people who've been waiting for the Spanish language edition in particular, and it's, it's out now. So you can find that most places that books are sold in Spanish, including Amazon. Yes. Right. Uh, so as I said, we're not... Did I say we're not doing a Q&A this week? Yes. Um, and uh, we are live on YouTube and Odyssey right now, I believe. 
the chat is live on Odyssey. Uh, we have a cool new shirt coming to our store.darkhorsepodcast.org next week, I believe. But right now you can still go get things like Epic Tabbies and uh, and digital book burning and, and, and such. I am confident enough on this new shirt that I think we can fairly guarantee that they will love it. All right. I all, see of no, I, all of them. Pretty much. It's, you can't miss. All right. Yeah. All right. It's a, okay. It feels a little niche to me. I, I don't think it'll outrage anyone. Right, right. I mean, well, there, except for the you right know, people. a small number of people may be indifferent, but I yeah. think uh, I feel good about it. Okay. Excellent. Well, that'll, that will bring to you next week, and we'll be back at our regular time next week. Um, um, one more teaser for next week, as long as we're teasing next right. week's all next right. week's broadcast. Um, next week, I believe I'm going to try to explain why everything is labeled in the inverse. Hmm. Why the disinformation is really informative and the information is labeled disinformation. Um, it, it, it's begun to come together and I'm going to lay out a model next week. So anyway, uh, hopefully people will tune in for that and we'll see what they think. Yeah. So I'm just putting that, writing it down so you remember that it's actually yes, on the docket. Yes, on the docket. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, All right. Dropping things on me as we are live here. Okay. Um, we, uh, as always, we encourage you to go to Natural Selections, which is uh, where I write on Substack. Almost everything is available there for free, although I did post a short thing there this week uh, for paying subscribers only that I called uh, Maybe You Don't Need Enemies, prompted by my observations walking around uh, parts of Portland noticing, as I have in traveling many parts of the world in the past, how easy it is to reach people if you actually just change your face from totally neutral or worse to a smile. And it is remarkable how many people don't do that and so immediately start interactions that maybe they'll never have with another person again uh, with a with a neutral or worse expectation. And it's rather easy to change that and people are even more hungry for niceness and human connection than ever right now. So uh, anyway, that's on that's on natural selections now. You were going to add something? No, oh, I was just going to say that, yes, the, uh, the fear that has been used to corral us and direct us is obviously contagious in a way that uh, yeah. um, has been demonstrated to be true of many emotional states. So yeah, your, 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 uh, your point about breaking that circuit by broadcasting something else, which is also contagious, um, I, I agree. That's a, and that's this, a key. This is a, this, <clears throat> excuse me, is a theme that will come up a little bit later on as we talk today, but also I think we should probably come back to it uh, in longer form later. The the contagion of emotions uh, that is well understood in many circles and that is being weaponized and therefore used to create great greater tribal divisions between us and than we would otherwise have is is stark and the fact that you know we can pretty much all see that it happens online where we're not really engaging with the complete human being, even if we're engaging with someone who we know to be a real human being, the online existence is not, is, is not their entire human beingness. And when we're actually engaging with another human being out in the world, even if it's someone we don't know, very often we go into it assuming this isn't going to work. There's, there's nothing to be done there. I already know that the boundaries are, are drawn and that this is unlikely to be a person I can talk to. And 
by and large, that's not true. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you remove, let's put it this way. It almost never happens that people break each other's noses, but the risk that it could happen actually sets bounds in the in-person interaction that um, cause most of those interactions to be a great deal better if you just simply lean into them. Um, yeah, this is interesting. I mean, this is going to be a place where men and women have very different traditional ways of, of interacting and of uh, you know what you know how things can escalate when they go bad, and therefore what the threats are underneath things and. You know, it's it's very rare that in all female spaces noses end up end up broken. But that's not to say that uh, that terrifically bad things don't happen as a result of what can happen in those spaces. Uh, but it, they tend to happen via very different routes. And I think you know, part of, as I've talked about before, as we've talked about before, part of the confusion of modernity is pretending that men and women aren't different, pretending. So in some circuit, in some places, imagining that going back to traditional roles would be the solution. No, like can't happen and no thank you. Uh, pretending that the only way out of it or imagining the only way out of it is imagining that we're the same and therefore there's nothing to be negotiated. No, have you met people? Obviously that's not true. But knowing that we are different and we will never be the same and that traditional roles uh, are full of now outdated stereotypes, and, may, and some of them were always outdated, or or were never relevant. Is what I mean. Uh, means that we need to forge a way forward while recognizing that, on average, an all male group will end up negotiating differences and mediating a conversation and decision making differently from how an all female group will. And therefore, when, as in modernity, we have male and female groups together moving forward with decision making and team building and problem solving, it is very likely that we need to be explicit and careful about recognizing that just defaulting to either male-typical or female-typical mode is not going to be successful. So actually, um, long as we're here, yeah. it occurs to me that we have a story that um, illustrates the problem of the environment that takes the broken nose off the table. Okay. Um, so <laughs> uh, uh, our, uh, for those of you listening at home, stop me if I've told you this before, but we have a friend uh, named George, I won't give his last name, who is a fellow cyclist who was cycling along one day. And because those in vehicles have very little risk from those on bicycles, there's a fair amount of weird stuff that gets directed at us sometimes. I've been hit by a BB once. Um, people yell things. They'll honk trying to scare you to fall off your bicycle or whatever. George was cycling along. Yeah, and, and a woman on a cycle uh, gets... Um a, a subset of things that men don't get as well, which is uh, you know obnoxious and you know has an additional level of threat because obviously someone in a vehicle uh, can catch up to someone on a bicycle unless you've got access to trails or thin alleys and and it's useful to have those anyway. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, cat calls from some really uncool cats. Beyond cat calls, sometimes yeah. Yeah. Anyway, George, not a woman. Uh, was <laughs> never been, never identified as such. Actually, nope. we have not checked in with George. Don't know how it's gone, but as far as we know, still a guy. I'd um, put some money on that. Yeah, yeah I would yeah, too. Yeah. Anyway, he was cycling along, minding mm -hmm. his own business, and uh, some dudes in a truck um, pulled up behind him. He was not noticing them, and one of them hurled a half-full beer can at him and hit him. 
and they shouted something out the window and sped off. George was enraged, as one might be, Mm -hmm. and he rode like crazy, and the dudes in the truck got caught at a stoplight several blocks away and did not realize that George was gaining on them. George pulled up to the stoplight, grabbed the guy who had thrown the beer can, pulled him through the window, (laughs) and broke his nose and said, don't fuck with bicyclists! And I would imagine that that guy has stopped fucking with bicyclists. So... Or gone the opposite direction. No, no? I'm pretty okay. sure George made his point. Um, you know, broken nose, that, that gives you time to think. Yeah. So anyway, my thought is that the car interaction, you are there in person, but the yeah. advantage that the driver and the passenger have over the cyclist makes it more like Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this particular case, uh, George's excellent cycling and the um, luck of the stoplight having brought those fellows mm-hmm. to a halt uh, turned the tables and, and there's literally a power differential. Um, yes, there, was there is. Make, a, I was trying to make a pun. Power differential. Yeah. 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 I'm, uh, I'm going to diagram that later and figure yeah. out what it was. And then I'll, well, the vehicle has a differential and yes. the bicycle doesn't. True. Yeah. Quite right. Yeah. Quite right. Yeah. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. but I think the, um, Anyway, the point is the risks in the situation set the rules. Mm-hmm. I've made the point uh, in an article I wrote for Unheard that actually firing ranges and gun shops tend to be very polite places because presumably <laughs> there are a lot of people uh, possessed of firearms. So anyway, this is an interesting question. You know, Polite and in my very limited experience, friendly. Yeah, friendly. welcoming. Mm-hmm. Very welcoming. Mm-hmm. All right. Well. All right. So we were talking, I don't remember how we got on that, on that topic. Oh, my, my Substack this week. Maybe you don't need enemies. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can drop the idea that everyone is um, likely to be your enemy out there and walk around being more welcoming and have just a better time of it when you're out there in the world. And, uh, and then I just wanted to say before we do our sponsors for the week, uh, many of you are uh, supporting us many ways by uh, subscribing to the channel on YouTube, on Odyssey, both the main channel and the Dark Horse Podcast Clips channel. You are liking videos, you are sharing videos, which is the the way that word spreads. So if you are if you are valuing what we do, uh, please do that. Please share with, with family and friends, and hopefully that doesn't get you um, unfamilied and unfriended. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who can, uh, we of course appreciate financial contributions. We were demonetized by YouTube last summer, and that has that has never come back. Um, but we do have uh, revenue that comes in through our Patreons. We thank all the, the patrons for supporting us that way. And I have something to say about the Discord that's available on our Patreon, but I have I have lost it once again. There it is. Uh, our wonderful Discord community where you can engage in honest conversations about difficult topics, join a book club, even unwind with virtual happy hours, and they've had a lot of them, uh, and even karaoke, young or old, left or right, there's a spot for you around the campfire. Uh, so you can access that through our Patreons. There's also a monthly Q- private Q&A. Brett has conversations um, through his Patreons once a month. And um, we also have sponsors. <clears throat> Three, the top of the hour. We will begin those now. Our first sponsor this week is Seed. Seed is a company focused on bacteria and the microbiome and has a terrific probiotic called DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. There are so many actions that you can take to enhance your health. 
Our sign-off here at Dark Horse includes three of them. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. But a lot is hidden in those words. What, for instance, constitutes good food? Good food is real food, whole food, food that has been alive recently and was grown with care and conditions as ancient as possible given the constraints of the 21st century, a point to which we'll return in our third sponsor for this week. But even many people who eat such a diet can be missing something. We contain multitudes. Every individual human contains so many other organisms, some of which may harm us, but many of which exist with us in harmony. We need them. This is why probiotics can be an important tool in a healthy lifestyle, even if you eat nutrient-dense food and avoid processed foods and sugar, as we all should be doing. That said, probiotics are in some ways the new current thing. Ever heard of probiotic tortilla chips, for instance? They were a thing, and no, they're not going to be effective. Good news, though. Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is the real deal. Not all probiotics are created equal. Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum, two-in-one, probiotic and prebiotic. It contains a proprietary formulation of 24 distinct probiotic strains in scientifically studied dosages in a two-in-one capsule that protects the probiotics until they hit the colon where they are most effective. If you've taken a probiotic for and never felt a difference, it's likely because the good bacteria weren't surviving your GI tract. Seed is designed differently, and that's why it works. Seed's daily symbiotic supports gut health, including maintenance of the gut barrier, as well as skin and heart health, and micronutrient synthesis. Many have used Seed to report improvements to to their digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. So start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse. Our second sponsor for the day is Mudwater which is a coffee alternative made with mushrooms, herbs, and spices. With one-seventh the caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash that many who drink coffee experience. Each ingredient in mud water was added with intention. It's got cacao and chai, lion's mane, cordyceps, chaga and reishi, turmeric, and cinnamon, among other ingredients. And this is really a terrific product, either on its own or as a warm drink in the morning, black or with cream or honey, There's definitely a hint of chocolate in the flavor, and the masala chai blend includes ginger and cardamom, nutmeg and cloves. And lately, I've been blending it into a smoothie with a banana and ice, some delicious locally made entirely nut milk, mint, and cacao nibs. It's totally delicious. They also now have an evening blend uh, with no caffeine at all. Uh, That's terrific as a a before sleep drink. Mudwater is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Furthermore, they donate a percentage of revenue to the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies and work with Pachama to contribute to reforestation efforts. Mudwater allows you to build a morning ritual that promotes sustained energy without the crash. Visit mudwater.com slash darkhorse to support the show and use darkhorse at checkout for 15% off. That's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com slash darkhorse. Use darkhorse at checkout for 15% off. And our final sponsor this week is Moink. That's Moo plus Oink. An eighth-generation farmer founded Moink and is working hard to help save the family farm and get its customers access to the highest quality meat on earth. Whereas 97% of the chickens served in the U.S. are dipped in chlorine, family farms don't tend to do that. Moink delivers grass-fed, grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door. Moink farmers farm like your grandparents did. And as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should, which is to say, delicious. Unlike the supermarket, Moink gives you total control over the quality and source of your food. You choose the meat delivered in every box, like ribeyes and chicken breasts, pork chops, and salmon fillets, and much more. Plus, you can cancel any time. 
We love everything about Moink. The fact that the meat is grass-fed and finished on small farms, the lovely publications that come along with it, and of course, the meat itself. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink bacon the best bacon he has ever tasted. We agree. It's amazing. Keep American farming going uh, by signing up at moinkbox.com slash darkhorse right now, and listeners of this show will receive a free filet mignon for a year. That's one year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. That's moinkbox.com, M-O-I-N-K-B-O-X dot com slash darkhorse. All right. We are going to start by sharing a few photos that I took yesterday while walking around North Portland. Zach, I think uh, you should have them. You want to put the first one up? So I was in a really a, a lovely shop uh, that had, among one of the very few unlovely things, a this for people just listening, some pins, which have on the left, vaxxed, I'm vaccinated, uh, and on the right, pronoun pins. And to me, this reminded me of the cultural moment we are living in, which has people who are confused about what sex is and who are insisting that however you feel like identifying is the sex that you are, and therefore it's paramount and maybe the most important thing about you to announce your pronouns in your bios and in introducing yourself to other people and in enforcing that on uh, all, of the, all the people in your world. Well, it's many of the same people who are certain uh, that although 500 million years of evolution might be wrong, the authorities that just came to you dressed in lab coats couldn't possibly be, and therefore uh, the new experimental technologies that everyone is being told they absolutely must take is the only way forward. Uh, did you want to add something? Yeah. Um, I wanted to introduce... I wondered... Um, and this is completely consistent with where you're headed here. When you see a consensus mm. and you also see coercion, you see people who depart from the consensus being punished, uh, and you therefore know that some percentage of the consensus is the result of people who fear saying otherwise, and that what uh, might be objections or diversity of opinion shows up as silence. The question is, why does the mind not register that that consensus isn't one? Or, I think even more likely, at the point you see intense coercion in the direction of a consensus, one ought to think that consensus is probably wrong. Yes. It wouldn't be necessary. If the yes. consensus were right, it would be naturally contagious. And this is a point that Neil Oliver was making in your conversation with him that you that you had as well. Yes. So, yes. but... Does this fallacy have a name where you fail to register? You've seen the mechanism that created a consensus, and yet your mind still thinks there's wide agreement when, in fact, it knows enough to know that it knows it at best. It knows nothing about how much organic agreement there actually is. Mm, yeah, I don't. I don't know if it has a name, and if it does have a name, what the name is. Uh, I'm not too up on uh, all, all of the fallacies and and their various names, but it does seem like it warrants one uh, because it is. It is, it is a psychological error, or maybe it's not a psychological error. It's a, it's a failure to recognize uh, a pattern that, that should be recognizable. Yeah, it, 
It is. And, you know, there's one other place I see a similar thing, which is if you had, you know, two shampoos and one of them has a slick advertising campaign uh, with a famous spokesperson or something like that, uh, you should probably think negatively about that one. Um, so anyway, I, I guess the point is why do, you know, this basket of pins here are people purchasing things, broadcasting something downstream of a phony consensus, which is a funny thing to do. Of course, we don't know how well the pins sell, but the fact that they're sitting there means that somebody expected they would. Yeah. And I and I saw this just moments really after I had the reason I was in North Portland was to pick up um, a beautiful piece of art that I had commissioned many months ago. And um, just a small, a, a, a small piece of, of glass. And uh, I had a conversation with the artist who's lived in Portland uh, for, I think, maybe all of her life, but at least um, at least since college. And she's, uh, you know, she's in our age range. Uh, and I guess at some level, you've been doing this your entire life. But at this point, I just start talking to people as if they're going to be reasonable. <laughs> rather than uh, being careful about not saying things about which the forced consensus would uh, seem to make us believe that uh, everyone probably disagrees with me and therefore you better not go there. And this lovely artist, this lovely woman just opened right up and she said, oh, yes, I, you know, I, I love Portland and I want to stay, but I can't, I don't know if we can. It's, it's such, it's such a mess here. And I, you know, I, and, and, you know, to use uh, the language that I, We've been using for a long time, but I feel uh, Michael Schellenberger really formalized in his in his book San Francisco and presumably elsewhere. San Francisco, yes, the book San Francisco. I can never say it. Um, is we have had our compassion weaponized against us, right? We are told, oh, if you if if you don't basically allow those people to have terrible terrible lives on the street in front of you, then you are being uncompassionate to them, and. No, that's actually not compassionate any more than it is uh, compassionate to let a child cut themselves or starve themselves or believe that they are a different sex than they are and therefore need to start to medically transition. Uh, none, none of these things are the compassionate, the compassionate thing to do. So let's let's. So go hold on, back to your point though. Your yeah. point was that um, you open up to people and you <laughs> yes. tell them that you're actually not part of the consensus. And at least in and my experience, <laughs> it's actually rare that anybody actually pushes back on behalf of the consensus. It's like there's this thin veneer of like, we all agree on that. And then you say, well, actually, I don't. And people are like, yeah, me neither. You know? So, mm -hmm. you know, no doubt there are people with whom that wouldn't work. Yep. But I think the question is, how tiny a minority is that? Yes. How tiny a minority is it who appears to be driving uh, culture and policy at a increasingly global level for all the rest of us on behalf of not even them. But even if they think it's for them, and even if it is for some tiny portion of them, sorry, no. Tyranny of a tiny minority, not okay. And in part, it's being allowed to happen because we are being told that it's a majority. But let's go to the next uh, photo here, Zach. This is just, so this is again, North Portland. Uh, Portland, <laughs> it's sort of like Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the uh, Galaxy trilogy, which is actually four, is it now five books? Now, I mean, he's books. been dead forever, but um, it turned into five books, a five book trilogy. Uh, North, uh, Portland has four quadrants, of which there are, uh, has quadrants, of which there are five. Uh, 
<laughs> which I don't, I don't know why. And North Portland is the fifth outlier one. It's a wedge because otherwise it's Northwest, Southwest, Northeast, Southeast. Anyway, those of you who don't live here don't care, but I don't know. I don't know why that is. Anyway, North Portland, um, in some ways is a, is an epicenter of the everyone agrees, right? And if you don't, what the hell are you doing here? So this is just one of many walls that I walked past with a chaos of of posters. It's mostly not uh, it's mostly not tagged live. It's mostly not graffiti, but posters that have been put up in in sort of the just a I don't know that there's a better word than chaos. And some of the sentiments there make some sense, and some of them don't. Some of them are incoherent to me, and presumably coherent to someone. But this this is what is passing at some level for street art in North Portland. And near there, next photograph, Zachary, uh, is this storefront with erected above it what looks like uh, a billboard. But I think I think that this apparent billboard, which reads, for those of you just listening, abolish police, is actually just a privately privately owned and erected by this by the storefront. So yes, abolish police is still, still being advocated for, even as uh, Portland's Homicide rate skyrocketed, uh, property damage, property crimes skyrocketed, homeless, homelessness and chaos ensuing has skyrocketed, although that was already quite high, in the wake of the move in the summer of 2020 to defund the police. And unfortunately, to some degree, the police were defunded. And of course, many good police also left the force and many who were somewhat near retirement but weren't immediately going to do so left because who wants to work in an environment like this? Yes, and actually, separately, um, I have been noticing in the last couple of weeks, police engaged in normal police behavior. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm wondering whether this is in some way organically true or mm. whether or not the police responded to the population signing on to a phony consensus about abolish, defund, all cops are bastards. Mm -hmm. I had the sense that cops had stopped enforcing anything but the most extreme uh, laws, mm -hmm. and even then doing so with such a delay that things like our homicide rate skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess there's a question, and I don't know what to think about it, because as we said uh, very forcefully at the time, demonizing the police is insane, right? right? There's obviously bad policing, but if you think the net effect of police is to increase crime, you have you have lost the plot, yes. right? And, you know, you can't measure the crime that doesn't happen because the police do come when you call, right? right? You just can't measure it. So um, in any case, yes, it was insane for us to allow the demonization of the police. And it is not surprising that the police might choose to allow us to discover something of what happens when they don't enforce the law because how long are you going to put up with being called bastards and being accused of being a, a, a net source of crime and being told that you might be killed on site right and actually mm -hmm. having yeah. uh you know your your murder openly advocated right. on walls across the city um so anyway i obviously can't defend the police not enforcing the law but it's not hard to imagine how they might become reluctant yeah um so, so. anyway yes i'm a little surprised to see that uh the, that sign on this business 
now, um, yeah. now because yes. obviously a lot of people have yeah. had time to recognize what happens as you even begin to move in the direction of abolishing or defunding the police. And uh, basically, it's exactly what you'd expect. It's, you know, it's warlordism. But it may become a little more clear uh, once I'm going to zoom in in the next couple of pictures on, you can see flyers in the window of this storefront, which is not open. And I couldn't exactly tell what it was and the lighting was bad. So these next pictures aren't too, too great. Um, but next, next photo, if you will, one of the flyers in the window there reads, again, sorry about the reflection, honor trans immigrant lives. Which, okay, honor, honor all lives, you know, not to trigger all those people out there. Like, what do you mean you can't talk about all lives until the people who are least privileged and most historically undervalued are protected? I don't agree with that, but I get that sentiment. But it is this adding trans into other discussions, which is something we talked about two summers ago during the during the summer of George Floyd, during the summer of over 100 consecutive days of protests, which turned into 100 consecutive nights of violent riots in the city of Portland, uh, where trans just gets entered into every discussion and then becomes central. And you might argue right now, well, it's Pride Month, it's just that. No, sorry. No, that's not what's going on. So honor trans immigrant lives. That's just odd, right? Like what a, what a, what a niche group that is. How many people is. are we talking about? How many people are we talking about? Okay, so next one, next flyer is uh, protect black trans sex workers. Also very niche. Also adding another group uh, to the mix, sex workers, which uh, is, yes, more, more susceptible to violence in their lives uh and uh also not just work as people involved in in advocating for quote-unquote sex work insist it is different uh and it should not be treated the same way as a secretarial job for instance but i will also point out the you know amazing irony of the security alert for our video surveillance <laughs> <laughs> right next to the protect black trans sex workers uh, poster, which is on the storefront, which is has across the top a faux billboard that reads "Abolish Police." So presumably they've got some private company, or you know, or it's or it's not for real, right? But they but if if this is for real at all, if they really do have, it's actually says twenty four hours, not four hour. Oh, I just. They just didn't catch it on the screen here. 24-hour video surveillance. If they've got anyone showing up, then we're talking about private security. Then we're talking about mercenaries, basically. And this is what we want. We, you know, we we prefer our protection to be in the hands of only those who can afford it, like used to be for, for instance, the fire department, and uh, only to be only to happen when you happen to have thought in advance about whether or not you had a risk, as opposed to having you know fixing the problems with um, police forces, which police forces recognize have existed. You know, there, there, are, there are power problems. There have been racial problems. All of this is true. But they exist for all of us. They exist to serve all of us. They are funded by all of our tax dollars. And they are supposed to be working on all of our behalf, unlike private security, which to have, to have that security alert 24-hour video surveillance posted on the same building that says abolish police strikes me as a, a particular kind of 21st century confusion that I, I didn't see coming. Yes. On the other hand, it seems to me that the, um, the poster that has been put in the window here 
like the others, is effectively um, bait. Mm -hmm. The answer is, what are your choices with respect to such a poster? <laughs> Would you like to spell out what your objection is to protecting uh, black trans sex workers? Do you believe that black trans sex workers are not vulnerable? Are they not human? Are they right? Is it is it that they're black that makes you indifferent? Right. So the point is, one has to have a very steady mind in order to figure out how to correctly raise the objection, and it still isn't safe to do. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the real point is, this is kind. It's visual sophistry. The point is, it's an invitation to a discussion in which, at best, you will survive. Mm -hmm. Right. Likely, you will trip right. over one of several booby traps in the in the visual presentation and the claim. And you know, I never saw anything this extreme in terms of the the nichification of the groups about whom we are supposed to care. Yeah. Uh, until the last few years, but before Evergreen blew up, when we were still at Evergreen, and there was the you know there was the Black Lives Matter nichification of progressive stack you know demographics that you were supposed to care about stuff. When I would see things about, oh, you know, it's it's the it's the black femmes on campus who are most at risk. I'm like, are there two of you? Yeah, you know, like like seriously. And at risk on and, and at risk of what? Campus? Like, no, you're like, not at risk, and there's two of you, and you're just the two people who have identified yourself as this. Like, you're you're just making stuff up. But also, it felt like, okay, whatever. Like, I, I'm not. I'm just. I'm not going to go there because. Because it's going to be too easy to paint me or anyone who raises objections to therefore hitting trans black femmes right. or uh, black trans sex workers or trans immigrants. Like, no, that's different. And and I think and I think you have actually nailed it. That this is visual sophistry. This is design sophistry. This is PR. This is sophistry as PR and marketing. And even those of us who can see it for what it is, largely, you know, we have to choose our battles. And we say, oh, okay, fine, go ahead and do fight your fight for black trans sex workers. And I guess at some level I'm saying, this is this is beyond absurd. These, you know, I don't I don't know exactly how to make the analogy work, but this emperor is long since naked, and we need to stop pretending. That the people who put abolish police and protect black trans sex workers are actually interested in a society that treats all human beings equally because they don't. Well, that's the thing about the sophistry, though, and this is why I um, keep uh, pointing to this particular uniting thread, is that the problem is actually in the burden and threshold of proof. That by leveling certain arguments as if they are credible arguments. The basic point is, well, you would have to beat this argument in order to uh, to prevent the natural conclusion from arising. We should be investing in protecting black trans sex workers. Well, that is not a slam dunk because the question is really one of what is the, you know, how do we protect people who are vulnerable best, mm -hmm. right? How do we distribute the resources for that? And it is very easy to become obsessed with certain things. And, you know, for example, um, if we look at something like uh, mass shootings, which are obviously catastrophic, mm -hmm. but our focus on mass shootings is bizarre in light of our failure to focus 
on, for example, iatrogenic harm from medical errors, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. what is more likely to kill you? That's a runaway win for iatrogenic harm. Yeah. And yet it's not compelling because you don't see it happen in the same way. Yeah. So, you know, the point is you, we have to figure out how to say, I'm actually not required to meet that argument, right? Mm -hmm. The burden is on you to establish that this is a reasonable standard by which to apportion limited resources, yeah. right? From the point of view of minimizing harm or maximizing good or whatever it is that you're trying to do. But the burden's on you. It's not that as yes. long as you can phrase an argument that it's going to take me five minutes to explain what's wrong with it, right? You win unless yeah. I invest the five minutes and you're compelled. That's yeah. not how it works. And by making a claim that we need to do X, what have you just undone of the other things that society had already agreed we need to do? And too often we aren't shown the thing that we're now going to lose. And then when you do raise the thing that you're going to lose, you say, ah, see again, you're, you're not caring about protecting black trans sex workers. So I would say, you know, forget about the trans part of this, forget about the black part of this. I don't care if you're trans or not, and I don't care what your race is. One thing that I care more about than protecting sex workers is protecting children. Mm -hmm. Children are, there are a lot more of them and they're inherently innocent. And I want to protect children from being exposed to sex workers and sex work. Mm -hmm. And that incidentally includes things like, uh, and this is a broad, a broad definition of sex work, and there will be some who can legitimately disagree here, but that includes things like burlesque and drag shows and peep shows, okay, which many drag shows turn into. Children should not be exposed to this. This is something we had all agreed on until yesterday. Sex workers' rights to perform burlesque or whatever it is that they want to call it, or to engage in quote-unquote sex work, and I don't like that term either, uh, cannot infringe. It, you know, If we can put aside, do they have that right? Claim that they do. Assert that they do for the moment. That right cannot infringe on the more important and more fundamental right of children to never be exposed to that thing. And again, Just as we made a point of never talking to our children about suicide until they were old enough, and we're not going to talk here about like what that means, and people will disagree about exactly what that boundary is, but we protected them avidly from any conversation, any exposure to the concept, and some people won't be able to because their children unfortunately know it all too close, but most children do not. There is no reason to put that into a child's mind. Similarly, there is no reason to put into a child's mind the idea um, that people are exchanging sexual favors for money to put sexual activity into their minds at all, to put into their minds that they could become, you know, that the little girl could become like daddy when she grows up. No, she cannot. So again, the question is, the argument is a feeble one on the other side. It is sophistry. So the mm -hmm. point is, feeble as it may be, it's going to take some work to explain exactly what's wrong with it. And yeah. what's wrong with it in the case of uh, burlesque and things related to it and children is that the upside of exposing children to this is essentially zero and the potential downside is massive so yes. the point is given that it this does not require an argument from those of us who would like to protect children the point is it's a slam dunk even if the other side was right what's the value in it yeah so there's given so, there's so much in this world there's so much that we were unable to expose our children to.
There's just so many opportunities. There's so much nature. There's so much art. There's so much music. There's so much literature. There's so much. There's so many things, and you know, gardens and just so many things that children can spend their time marveling at the wonders of the world. And there's no way that sex shows should be on that list. And uh, yeah, so but this brings a number of things together because. Yeah. The point is, A, we all agreed on this until five minutes ago for a reason. Right. One, it's obvious. So two, is it incumbent on us to explain why it can't suddenly become okay, mm -hmm. right? Even if you thought it might be okay, you wouldn't assume it was okay in light of the risk, right? But the coerced consensus around this means that it's actually happening. We've gone from everybody agreeing that it would be wrong to have a child at a burlesque show mm -hmm. to a state in which it is now presumed to be okay. And if you say, hey, wait, still not okay, then the point is, oh, what kind of bigot are you? Yeah, you live in the dark ages, man. Right. And so, you know, the problem is sophist sophistry is... Um, not a well-understood concept by most people. Mm -hmm. And so saying it as sophistry works with an audience that's been uh, brought up to speed or yeah. knows the term already. What do we do so that we can put the burden of proof back where it naturally goes in argument after argument, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's what's happened is by, by leveling these sophist arguments, they have flipped the burden of proof and it's very effective, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make their point any better, but it makes it more powerful, and that—that's yeah. the thing that we have to uh, figure out how to repel. But I don't know what to, I don't know what to do because again and again, it's like oh, I can see the flaw in that argument, and I'm going to I'm going to explain it, and it's like cool that I can explain it. Yeah. But the really important point is I don't have to, right? None of us have to. These are not good arguments, even if explaining why they're bad takes five minutes. Right. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Let's go to the last slide, Zach. A uh, picture from yesterday in North Portland. This is it's a little unclear. It's, it's a telephone pole that has, you know, probably years worth of posters attached to it. The most modern one being Pride Brunch. You can't see that very clearly, but the four performers all appear to be uh, in drag. And so I, I thought, okay, Pride Brunch, cool, I guess. You know, Pride, Pride Month has never mean anything mean, mean. Meant. <laughs> yeah, that's the term. <laughs> that's the term. Uh, anything in particular to me, but it's, you know, it's been in existence as long as I can remember. And okay. Uh, click through, though, you know, go to that, uh, whatever QR that code, code is called. Yeah. yeah, the QR code. And Zach, if you would show my screen briefly, uh, the Pride Brunch is actually, and it's actually happening, it's happening almost right now. The doors open in eight minutes. So if you're in Portland and would rather be here, actually, no, it's sold out. Sorry, can't go. Um, but you read read the fine print, and it really is quite fine, isn't it? Uh, here, a little bit bigger, uh, and find that it's an all star cast for a drag queen brunch. Well, that's different. All star cast for a drag queen brunch. I thought it was a pride brunch. Nope, it's a drag queen brunch. I'm sorry, not the same. Yep. So, I want to protect children before I want to protect sex workers. I want to protect women before I want to protect. Uh, trans men's rights to be trans women's sorry rights to be in the prisons of the gender that they identify as and i want to protect gay people uh 
for to have their you know have spaces and actually have some place to honor themselves and what it is that their unique situation in life goes through rather than having everything in pride month be pride month wow pride month being replaced with drag and and trans and it seems like it's there everywhere and you know here of course we have uh wear your pride colors and come celebrate what makes the lgbt TQIA plus community so dang special. Yeah, th- this is a topic much better covered uh, by others. I'm thinking in particular of uh, Katie Herzog and Mike Solana, two two of my uh, oh, and uh, and Douglas Murray, of course, all make related points very very well. But there is something you and I are old enough to remember um, when being gay was far more of a big deal than it is now and one of the things that those who truly did harbor bigotry about homosexuals used to say was that you know that this was somehow about recruiting children now the problem is that that's not what gays were doing but there is that element here, and of course we can... You now know, that the community has got all these other letters associated with it. Right, and yeah. that... Uh, I, I, I'm struggling for terminology that I shouldn't be struggling for. Yeah. But, um, you know, garden variety gay folks <laughs> um, are now um, being challenged by their supposed community, Right for simply being gay that's because that has successfully been understood as a normal phenomenon the point is there's this other um element that is now pushing really fringe dangerous stuff involving children and you know one has to feel tremendous sympathy for for homosexuals who did finally finally win their place in society um, you know, that was a long, ugly, terrible struggle. And now it's like, you know, they, they enjoyed five minutes of being welcomed in polite society before they're now being challenged by their supposedly own community. That's, right. It's quite the predicament. No, and then the same argument can be made for the much larger community, you know, population of people that are women uh, who, have, you know, have had been more fully uh, empowered with legal rights for somewhat longer than homosexuals had in most, maybe all countries, um, but are seeing our rights eroded by the same fringe community. And, you know, and children is a little bit of a different situation because, you know, people have been trying to protect children for forever and other people have been trying to exploit children forever uh, but the the new thing there is that suddenly it has become the compassionate the liberal thing to do to encourage children to be exposed to adult human beings sex perversions no not compassionate not liberal that's on you for falling prey to some really insane ideology and I recommend that you think it through. Like, just put those words through a filter and like, yeah, actually, I don't think I want my kid exposed to that. Yeah. I don't think I want anyone's kids exposed to that. Right. Um, And I will just, at the tail end of this, point out, I've started to hear this week, maybe we've heard it before, but about the question of, of reparations for trans people, right? I had not heard this. Oh, yeah. This is, this is okay. a great one because, of oh, course, okay. 
Yeah. Look, reasonable people can disagree. And I think actually there is a very natural conversation to be had around reparations for American blacks, right? Mm -hmm. There is a long history mm -hmm. of oppression. Yep. It is handed down through a lineage. And the question is, how do we right that wrong once and for all? And, you know, and very smart, very carefully considered people with very carefully considered opinions do actually disagree on this front. And I have heard arguments on both sides that are compelling to me. Right. And in yeah. fact, uh, I will say my position is an intermediate one, which is mm -hmm. I think reparations are justified, but cash reparations are not going to work. And mm -hmm. they create a bunch of new problems that will make things worse. So the question is, for example, how do we invest in communities to finally level the playing field, right, without mm -hmm. creating an excuse for civilization to move on from the genuine harm that is a part of our history. Yeah. So anyway, there is plenty of room for rational arguments. Mm -hmm. The problem is, it's, you know, it's just like all of these other things, right? Gays win legitimacy in society and then a bunch of people follow them through the door with arguments that they claim are the same argument, just the next phase of it, but it's not the same argument. Women gain the ability to uh, to compete against each other without having to compete against men and then a bunch of guys follow them through the door, you know, um, and start beating them in the pool and bicycling and every other way. Well, and the, and it's not a metaphor if you take it out of sport and take it into actual safe spaces. Oh, you know, of course. Domestic abuse right, right, right. And, and such. And like, oh, who followed me through the door? That's not a woman. Right. No, doesn't belong here. No. 100%. But yeah. the point is, okay, the reparations argument is on the table. Well, it's about time it's on the table, right? Whatever the right uh, resolution of that question is. But the argument does not apply. This is, again, sophistry, right? Because trans people are not a lineage. So the point is the idea that if you are trans, you know, in June of 2022, that you are therefore suffering the weight of oppression that has followed you through history. No, you probably became trans in 2022, or maybe it was 2021. But, yeah. but the point is the oh. whole argument doesn't follow. And yet, again, it's like, yeah. you know, I'm not wrong because it takes a a little explaining to get there. No, this <clears throat> this is critical. I mean, we've talked about this not with regard to trans before, but with regard to how sex and race are different. In fact, we talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, that sexism is real and racism is real, um, but they have some very important distinctions between them. Uh, and one of one of the ways to understand it is exactly as you just pointed out: sex is not a lineage. Everyone has an equal number of male and female. Uh, ancestors. And there's going to be people who say, I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, you're thinking at the population level because you've heard that there are more, uh, you know, there, there are fewer males who have successfully reproduced in the past, which is true. So at the population level, not all men reproduce, but almost all women do. But at an individual level, you've got a mom and a dad, and so did both of your mom and dad, and so did on, on back forever. Like everyone had one mother, one father, therefore an equal number of male and female uh, ancestors. And um, that means that woman is not a lineage. Um, you've got an equal number of woman ancestors, whether or not you're woman or man, as you do man ancestors. Whereas race, which is messy because, again, as we talked about last week, it's reticulate and, and no, you know, no races are, are pure. And I say that's a gross word to use here and I put it in quotes and everything. Um, but we're all, you know, interbreeding all the time. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a very messy concept, uh, in humans, but there is a lineage component. 
And because it bears an external phenotypic marker, it has been used to abuse and keep down whole groups of people. Obviously, we all know this. Even the racist among us know this, right? Um, that, you know, there is a history of actual, you know, slavery and, and institutionalized racism and things like this. Um, so, but trans even more than sex precisely because you are born a particular sex and therefore at least through your own developmental history you may if you're born in a particular moment under a particular situation bear the brunt of like shit sorry but like i was born female and that wasn't good here and therefore a lot of bad things happened to me that wouldn't have happened if i were male trans for most people who are calling themselves trans now is a hat. It's a thing they're putting on. And so at the moment that they decide now I am, and oh, I'm sure I was all along, maybe in some cases, yes. For some very rare cases, yes. Um, but for most of you to put it on and they say, now, gimme. Now I'm going to get what, what I'm due because of all the past oppression that I wasn't even around for. Nope, that's not how it works. Yeah, I was going to say, um, what I said could sound callous about most uh, of these folks maybe became trans in 2021 or 2022. But the yeah. point is actually that's the problem. Right. That trans is a real thing. And many people have been trans, uh, you know, for much of their lives. But the point is the contagious part of this, the socially contagious part is a different phenomenon, which is what many of us, including yeah. people like uh, Blair White and Buck Angel are trying to say. Yeah. There's there's trans activism, which is a, a contagious movement. And there is trans, yeah. which is a much smaller group of people who genuinely wrestle with things. Still not a lineage. Yeah. Right. Still um, not a lineage. Still not a lineage. That's right. But nonetheless, those are two two different categories. So um, there's a big thing that I want to do this week, prompted by some news that Reuters put out, in which they say gender affirming guidance for prepubescent children is non invasive and includes professional support. Experts say. And I started thinking about who are these insane experts who say such a thing. And it turns out it's uh, WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And I spent a lot of time looking into their document, their, their uh, standards of care for the health of transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people. Uh, I think given that you have a lot of stuff you still want to talk about and that we're under some time pressure this week, I'm going to save this. I definitely want to come back to it. I, I, have, some, I have some dismantling of WPATH's standards for of care for the health of transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people. Uh, but I don't want to have it be rushed. I do want to say two more things before we segue into what you're uh, what you're going to do though. One of them is, and again I'll return to this when I do when we do return to this with more time, their document is literally called, once again, Standards of Care for the Health of Transsexual, Transgender, and Gender Nonconforming People. It's hard for me to do this without getting either angry or just laughing. <clears throat> Three categories, standards of care. We're talking about medical care, transsexuals, transgender people, and gender nonconforming people. Yeah, tomboy medicine. <laughs> there, there are no human transsexuals. That's not possible, okay? That's not a possible state for humans. Humans cannot be um, hermaphrodites, sequential hermaphrodites. Some fish can. <laughs> We're not we're not fishing that way. <laughs> we're some some actinopterygians. Okay, you can look it up if you can spell it and, and go find what I'm. We're mean fish, but we're not reef fish. <clears throat> yeah, some reef fish can. A few other a few other non reef fish I think can, but there are no human transsexuals. So that's not that's an empty category. Uh, there are human transgender people, 
And uh, when I say that, when Brett says that, what we mean usually is what uh, many of the professionals are meaning when they say transsexual. And then they're lumping all of this sort of uh, kind of gender dysphoric, uh, but I'm not going to fully transition with all of the tools at my disposal into transgender. But I'm going to leave that as a, as a category that is worthy of consideration with regard to what kinds of treatment and care uh, we should be delivering to these people. <clears throat> the third category for which WPATH has written an incredibly long document, which I will dismantle another time, uh, which they say warrants standards of care, gender nonconforming people. Gender nonconforming people are people who don't entirely ascribe to the expectations of the sex to which they were born, not assigned, for their culture. Now, in 1980, to pick a date far enough in the past for it to be, I'm certain this is true, and yet not so modern that it had begun to be dismantled already, by 1980 in the United States at least, and I think in all of the weird world, although weird wasn't an acronym yet coined, it was well understood that women who desired to work full-time in the workforce and maybe weren't that interested in having a family were not less of a woman because of that. And that men who were interested in going to caregiving professions were not less of a man for doing that. Those people are gender nonconforming, as I was gender nonconforming as a child and, and still in many ways am. Yeah. I, have, I have many characteristics that are more male typical than female typical. And that's what gender is. Gender is the behavioral manifestations, the personality manifestations, the softer manifestations of sex, which is hardware. And if you are a clownfish, your gender, aka your sex role, 100% follows from your sex. And when your sex changes, so does your gender, known as sex role in clownfish. And there's no negotiation. There's no ambiguity. In humans, of course, there is. We're so much more software. We've got so much more going on. And so much of the sex role in the first place, the gender, was a negotiated overlay in the first place. We don't change color when we change sex, unlike reef fish who do that. We don't change our... <clears throat> Um, I mean, we don't, we don't, well, we don't change sex. We don't change color when a woman decides that she wants to be an aviation mechanic. You don't now have badges, you know, maybe you put on overalls, right? Because it's appropriate to the job. And maybe you put on overalls because you feel more comfortable in it. And because it feels like an expression of who you want to be. Doesn't make you male. And it doesn't change the underlying reality. So the idea that gender nonconforming people require care require medical care, that's a sign that we are going backwards. Require are, special medical care. That we are right. That the idea that that those of us who don't fall in line with the cultural expectations of how we should act because of the sex that we were born to we're, and are lumped in with transsexual and which doesn't exist and transgender, which does exist people, is itself a sign of intentional confusion and regression back towards a day when women actually weren't able to do as many things as we do now. So that's the, that's the little rant that will be included in a larger analysis of this document, which is this document was written by the people who are the experts that Reuters is now using as their fact check when they say gender affirming guidance for prepubescent children is non-invasive and includes professional support. Experts say, one more little teaser, one of the things they say in this document is, I'm going to find it. Puberty blockers are fully reversible interventions. 
So I'll just yeah. I'll just leave it there. No, wrong, patently false. Everyone who's given it any thought knows this. And if you think that you're a healthcare worker and you still think that puberty blockers are fully reversible, you have no business doing the job that you're doing. You are a danger to your clients. All right. They are gender sophists. We have to remember that, mm -hmm. right? One does very tempted to explain everything that's wrong. On the other hand, it's cool to explain it, but it's not a requirement because it's obviously wrong. Bad news for these gender sophists. Joan of Arc was not a man. Not a man. Not a man. Not a man. Nope, not a man. Um, the the other thing, which is just sort of a a, a bigger observation, not about WPATH. I'm off my off that soapbox for the moment. Uh, but walking around North Portland, as I was taking those few pictures and more, and interacting with people, um, where even there, it was possible to get smiles from people on the street. Not as easy as in other parts of Portland, but it was possible. My sense was, I just had this image of, and maybe it's at time, maybe it's Portland, maybe it's the West Coast, maybe it's all of the United States, maybe it's the whole world. Like we're on some giant, giant lake. It's pretty flat at the edges and it's really cold out and it's frozen. And we're all standing on this lake and we're just trying to exist and not freeze to death by falling into the water below. And there's yahoos coming from all the sides. And they're coming onto parts of the lake that we're on, and they start jumping up and down. And I feel like I'm hearing the ice cracking from deep in the lake, and it's just radiating up, that sound for anyone who's been on a lake in winter when maybe it wasn't quite completely frozen, and you begin to hear the ice as it cracks, and you think, I gotta get out of here gotta move. This is no longer safe. And if it's just you, and you weren't being too much of a yahoo yourself getting to where you are, you can probably get out of there. But there's other people on whom you have no ability to tell them, stop doing that. Stop jumping up and down on the ice. You're going to break it. And then all of us are doomed. It's really hard to save yourself. So I, I now, since, since yesterday, walking around North Portland, where it's endlessly raining, but it's not that cold. So I'm not sure where this image of this vast frozen lake came from, but I feel like everyone needs to recognize our shared fate here. We are all human beings on this finite, beautiful planet, and we are putting so much at risk with this sophistry. Yes, and I, I can't help but see the sophists on the lake as um, throwing sledgehammers and breaking out jackhammers and uh... I, I'm just seeing the people and I'm seeing them jumping up and down fiercely like I if, for me we start adding machines and tools like that's a very male approach right but <laughs> um, and you know maybe 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 that's just you know you, you can have that image but for me it's actually just this endless lake with people and sure they have clothes on but it's really just frozen water and people and because edges are less frozen and more shallow or, or you know, b because there's different depths and there's different places where the, the currents are stronger underneath. And you can't tell once it's frozen on top, but where the current is stronger, the ice will be weaker. And so jump there, but don't know what's underneath, what you are putting at risk by jumping there. And you have no idea what you're putting at risk. Yeah. You have no a, idea. And it's not, it, they're not entitled to to put other people's stuff at risk, which is yeah. your point. They're, they're yeah. putting us all at risk. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm going to start in an odd place here. 
I'm just going to make a claim and then you can think about it on your own and understand what it implies. Let's say that you were standing in a forest. Let's make it a really diverse one, you know, the Amazon. Every creature that you see is the result of a three and a half billion year winning streak of reproduction. And for almost every creature that you see, that winning streak is about to come to an end, right? That's just statistically true. Most creatures are dead ends very soon, but by virtue of their having arrived here, we know that they have never lost till this point, right? They've arrived. That's why evolution is so effective, right? It's effective because of that massive edit each and every generation that eliminates all but the ones in which the best characteristics and good luck have come together and gotten them one more time through this intense bottleneck, right? So evolution is a very powerful process for that reason, because of the constant massive editing. Economics isn't quite that effective, but it has the same characteristic. Now, when we say that a creature fits into a niche, what do we mean? Well, what we mean is that there is some abstraction, some way to exist that, it, that is there. And creatures, by exploring that space, right, those creatures with a little bit more of this, a little bit longer limbs, right, a little bit more acute eyes, whatever it is, longer snouts, <laughs> whatever it happens to be, the creatures come to fit that niche in the same way that a liquid comes to fit the shape of whatever container you put it in. So the point is, evolution, whether it's economic or biotic, explores the shapes of containers. And it tells us what the shape of the container is by what works, what sticks, what we see there. And, all right, the reason this comes up <clears throat> is I was for the third time in a short number of weeks confronted by the system for COVID testing that one has to engage in to participate in certain activities. These are tests that you source within a certain number of hours before you get on a plane or attend an event or in cases in Portland, some places you would have to do it to go to a restaurant if you can't prove you're vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, Most recently to get uh, Toby admission to camp. Yes, mm -hmm. Toby admission to camp. Um, we have also done it. <coughs> I've now done it in three countries. Mm -hmm. I've done it in the U.S. a couple times. I've done it in Britain, and we've done it in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. Each time the experience is the same. Hmm. Uh, it's very um, uh, bureaucratic, <coughs> but surprisingly efficient. It's strange. Talking about COVID testing makes us both cough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, but, but the point is, um, one goes in and one fears that somebody is going to jam a, sna uh, a swab <laughs> way up into your sinuses. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's not, it doesn't go in so deep. In fact, they'll hand you the swab and you do it yourself. And it, it does raise a question. I mean, for one thing, you and I have both had COVID. I have yet to successfully test positive. We know that we've had COVID because, yep. for example, you and I, one of us gave it to the other, and then you lost your sense of smell. I had anosmia. Yeah. Right, which is really the good test. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at least for the antigen tests, it didn't come up positive for us. So yep. that's interesting. Lab work is difficult. These tests are not particularly good. In fact, one of the things that we don't know is how good these tests even are and good at what. are they, How good are they for one variant to the next, right? We don't know these questions. But the point that I want to make is that there is a niche now for a service 
that service ostensibly is about testing for COVID. And in principle, this is a good idea. COVID is a dangerous disease, right? Much more dangerous than the case fatality rate would have you understand. Trying to control its spread is a good idea. Knowing who has it is a good element in a program to control its spread from one part of the country to the next, from one country to the next. It makes sense. But what has emerged in this niche is a racket, right? A low quality testing service that is very expensive, right? The tests in the US cost 300 bucks a pop if you need them on short notice. And you do need them on short notice because people say you need it within yeah. 48 hours of travel. And in principle, that's a good idea, right? So that you have a good right. sense that everybody who arrives has just tested negative and therefore is likely to remain negative. It, you know, in yep. principle, it's a great idea. But the point is, what you've got <clears throat> is something that is exploring the dimensions of this niche. And one of the elements of this niche is that it is going to reward poor testing rather than high quality testing. If you have COVID, you test negative, you go to whatever the event is, and it turns into a super spreader event. What are the chances that anybody is tracking which lab failed to detect your COVID? Right? So the point is, the incentive... Yeah, on top of the event now having a super spreader event to mitigate the downstream effects of, they're going to go and do due diligence on every single person's COVID test? No, they're not. Right. They're not. What's I mean, the data more, exist, but somebody not. would have... You'd have to set up something like an agency in order to figure out which labs were more likely to miss active COVID, right? Yeah. You would need a series of super spreader events, and then you would chase them back to potentially organizations that had run the test badly, to protocols that didn't work, right? But no such oversight appears to exist anywhere. And so the point is... And w without which, I mean, this is where you've gone, without which it's it's pure theater. It's worse than pure theater exactly. because what it yeah. does is it inhabits the space it's that a good... It's expensive theater, though. It's, it's lucrative theater. Lucrative. Yeah, it's expensive for us. Lucrative. It yeah. fills the space in the environment where a good testing program would go. So if you had the idea yes. of, well, you know what? It would be really great if we had good labs that gave good tests, especially, hey, maybe even at a good price, right? Well, the question is, economically speaking, which of these things is going to win that niche? Mm -hmm. Right? Is it the one where you're likely to get an, a test that says you're COVID positive? It's, is it the very sensitive, high quality test that's going to win out? Probably not, because if you're in the position of getting one of these tests, then you know you're rooting for a negative result, right? right. You want to go to the thing, you want to get on the airplane, you want to go to the place that you've got reservations. You don't want a positive test. And so the point is there is competition to deliver you an answer that you want. That is going to increase the number of super spreader events. It's going to increase the amount of COVID, the difficulty of controlling it, the number of variants that are going to circulate around the world. And if you tried to do it right, you would lose in competition with these folks who have that niche filled, mm -hmm. right? And so- Yeah, this, this is a place where market forces fail us. Well, let's put it this way. They don't have to. Well, they have. Right. Because- all of the testing centers um, within a particular geographic area are in direct competition with one another. And so that that testing center, which had access to or did due diligence on actually doing a more reliable, providing more reliable test results, and thus providing fewer false negatives, uh, would lose in competition. Would lose in competition. And there's a question about how far up this scales. In other words, 
the system that created the niche, how interested in it is it in controlling COVID versus appearing to be very active in controlling COVID mm-hmm. without bothering? And, you know, it bears mention that at least one part of this system is making so much money from COVID mm-hmm. that it has a perverse incentive, right? Is the moral decency of the people in charge of pharma so good that it overwhelms their fiscal benefit from uh, not controlling COVID and delivering uh, lousy remedies that are expensive and mandated and paid for by government, right? I don't know. Maybe they're exceedingly good people, but all of them, all of them, right? Or you know, even if you time. even if you imagine that that's true, all right. So you have multiple companies. Let's say nine out of ten are run by exceedingly moral people who just would never think of and doing. Somehow their boards are cool with this. Their boards are cool, even yeah. though it is a violation of their fiduciary responsibility to their mm-hmm. shareholders. But all it sure, takes sure. is the one company that isn't run by those people. One company that's just simply run by business people, right? And that company will win and then it will take over the industry. So basic point is, hey, look, you get whatever the niche is, right? You don't expect when you pour water into a glass, you don't expect it to inhabit half the glass and leave half the glass empty. It will fill whatever shape you've given it. And the point is the niches are what they are. Mm. The businesses will discover the shape of the niche. Those that are better able to explore and figure out where the opportunities are that aren't so cool but nonetheless are lucrative, those businesses will will win out in competition. And so we get these things. So check this out, though. Um, I just read, and I, I don't think I figured out where it is before our show here today, but I just read that as of tomorrow, as of June 12th, the CDC has declared, and I question why the CDC gets to declare anything, anytime, anywhere, ever again, but like, I just don't think they have the authority. They're not that kind of an agency. But the CDC has declared that as of June 12th, uh, people coming to the US do not need to have a negative COVID test, Uh, which is interesting in light of all of this, uh, that the US is saying, yep, or I don't know if the US is saying, the CDC is saying, "Ah, the thing's changed. This is this is no longer a necessary part of the protocol. Right, which could mean a lot of different things. It yeah. could be, you know, so my claim is that the uh, COVID testing regime is a racket, right? Yes. The idea is it looks like a COVID testing regime, but really it's a rubber stamping mechanism where you get, you pay 300 bucks for the rubber stamp um, and the chances that they catch, uh, you know, your active infection are, you know, at least lower than they should be. It reminds me of getting research permits in uh, tropical countries back when back when I was actively doing it. You didn't have to do it as much because you were often working within um, a field station that yep. took care of a lot of the logistics for you. But yep. I ended up having to get independent permits in three different countries, in Latin America and Madagascar. And I mean, you were there for some of the wrangling with bureaucrats in Madagascar. You know, I got asked for things like, land. I literally got asked for a Land Rover. I'm like, at that point, I made $13,000 a year. I'm like, do I look like I have a Land Rover? <laughs> but- uh, Doesn't hurt to ask. Doesn't hurt to ask, yeah. And you know, one day we were told to come back yet again because the guy with the rubber stamp was gone. The next day, oh, the guy was there, but the key to the office uh, was with someone else, and then like it just went on and on, on. But anyway, the, yeah, the rubber stamping. Uh, it, it, this this rubber stamping reminds me of uh, incoherent uh, bureaucratic procedures in very poor countries where local dudes are just trying to make a buck. Yes, the problem is in 
the banana republics, so-called, yeah. you can see this, right? And the, the right. irony of the power of the guy with the rubber stamp and the yeah. fact that the guy with the rubber stamp makes so little money that it would be impossible. If somebody is going to extract a million dollars of lumber out of a forest they're not supposed to be cutting lumber from, and the person who has the rubber stamp makes $10,000 a year, it's not hard to change that guy's picture enough that he'll look the other way. Yeah. So if, I mean, that that's... that. At least when I was working in Madagascar, that that number would have been way lower. Yeah, yeah. You know, just Madagascar was so poor, like so. Yes, a Land Rover was a very big ask, um, but I believe in that case, I came back with a bottle of Johnny Walker, and you know, that was that was good. That was sufficient. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> but I wanted to point to a shinier, fancier version of a closely related racket, because really, my point is. You can see it with the COVID thing. It's mm -hmm. new enough. And because we're interacting with it and learning what this system looks like, it's like, oh, this couldn't possibly work, yeah. right? Um, but there are other versions of it. So one of them that surprised me during <coughs> the, uh, the COVID pandemic was the discovery of how the testing the safety testing of pharmaceuticals actually works and you know this is the second time i've encountered weirdness in that realm the first time being about telomeres and mouse evolution which i will just point out the story there i don't want to go too deep because it would take a lot of explaining but i discovered as a graduate student that the mice in the colonies that supply our scientific establishment including our drug safety testing uh, apparatus those mice had evolved to the container formed by the market for laboratory mice. And so the point was, look, if you're going to breed laboratory mice, you want to produce as many mice per unit of effort and shelter and food as you can. And that economic pressure to produce new mice as cheaply as possible causes breeders to breed young mice and not old mice. And that simple fact... Um, elongated the telomeres of mice and gave them essentially no protection from tumors and a essentially infinite capacity to replace damaged tissue, which... It's a selective force that effectively moved all of the negative effects of all the drugs that were being tested into later stages of life. Right. And so the problem, when I discovered that, and I discovered it, I predicted it from theory, Carol Greider then tested it and established that indeed wild mice did not have long telomeres, which was not obvious at the time. Um, but the point was, when I found that, I naively believed that what would happen next is everybody would go, <gasps> and they would realize that their science was all polluted by the mice they had been using, and that their drug safety testing was allowing dangerous drugs to make it to market, and there was going to be a massive effort to retest drugs, a massive effort to figure out how this had polluted what we understood about wound healing, and aging, and cancer, and everything else, and it didn't happen. Right now, crickets. I think so. Why why the crickets? One reason I believe is that pharma and everything connected to it realized that it had a mechanism for making drugs that weren't especially safe look very safe. In fact, mm -hmm. if you give a poisonous drug to a mouse that's going to die of cancer but has an infinite capacity for repair, if the poison isn't so poisonous that it kills the mouse outright, it may actually make them live longer because it functions as chemotherapy since cancer cells are in the process of always dividing, they are more vulnerable than regular cells. And so that is a result I've seen several times where a drug paradoxically makes the animals live longer and seems super great. But the point is, no, that won't translate to humans. 
Nonetheless, the point is the mice adapted to an economic niche, which has very real biological consequences. Mm -hmm. The racket I wanted to point to that isn't particularly visible, right? The COVID testing racket is visible to us. The one that surprised me, doesn't surprise me in retrospect, but surprised me when I first came to understand that it existed, was that when we say Pfizer tested its drug uh, for safety, that's generally not what we mean. Pfizer doesn't test the drug. What Pfizer does is it contracts those who specialize in the testing of drugs to do these tests. And the problem is, if you imagine an outfit that's awesome at testing drugs and detecting safety signals that are really important versus one that sucks at it by design, the point is Pfizer has an interest in finding the one that's going to give it the equivalent of the rubber stamp. Mm -hmm. And so there's economic competition, even if Pfizer didn't know what it was doing, mm -hmm. right? To the extent that it gives business to those that have a protocol that is most likely to miss safety signals, right? Then that, it means that Pfizer doesn't have its fingerprints on it. It means uh, that its drug makes it to market because it looks safer than it is. And this is especially true in the case where you've got uh, immunity from liability, mm -hmm. right? Because there's no way for the system to come back and correct it. So the evolution of protocols that don't work, that's what you're going to get if the shape of the container is such that it rewards those protocols, which we can see, you know, how many other places are there? I've now described two, right? The mouse version is a third so how many places has the shape of the container caused us to put together something that looks like a scientific protocol that just doesn't do what it's supposed to do? The two that you described are the COVID testing. COVID testing, uh, the running of clinical trials to see how safe and effective <clears throat> drugs yeah. are, mm -hmm. um, where the companies that actually do that work are uh, rewarded for pleasing their employers right? Or they're those who have contracted them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the mouse thing, I believe happened inadvertently. I'm yeah. all but certain that nobody planned that. But having discovered that it existed, the incentive to get rid of that and get mice that could actually tell you when a drug was dangerous, right. that incentive wasn't there. Yeah. No, I mean, certainly in, in the case of the mice, <clears throat> by far the most parsimonious uh, explanation for how those breeding protocols got started was just simple economics. Simple. Ec well, yeah. in, in fact, that is reflected yeah. by the fact that when I found that, I went looking because that has nothing to do with mice or science. What it has to do with is any protocol in a small, it has to be a small animal. It won't work with a large mm -hmm. one because a large one will get cancer and won't live to reproduce. But in a small enough animal, if you breed for economic efficiency, you get this result. And so we've seen it in mice, rats, Asian hamsters, Mongolian chickens. Gerbils. Yeah. Right? Like there's a the there's Asian a hamsters. Oh, is that Mongolian gerbils? Is that the same thing? I'm agnostic on okay. Mongolian gerbils. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I know there's just there's a lot of uh, anyway. Doesn't matter. Um, there are there are a few of these. Uh, what, what was the? Oh, you said chickens. You said? Chickens. Oh, yeah. I was so a few rodents and I guess a bird mm -hmm. uh, that uh, should happen with where it. we we see uh, a species basically being designed with some intentionality um, to be a good lab animal. Right. Yeah. Um, really, and, it's, you yeah. know, the, anytime... And the, the, the intention is to be a good lab animal, and the the failure is, oops, complex sy systems, unintended consequences, 
um, you know, antagonistic pleiotropies, which is specifically what you found with regard to cancer and senescence uh, in uh, with regard to telomere length, um, which is to say early effects that are that are good will mask late effects that are bad. Yep. Uh, from the same, right. same gene. I mean, you know, the basic point is, look, it should have been obvious that you're laboratory colony is an environment every bit as much as a forest or your basement, you know, right. or a grain silo, <clears throat> right. right? And so whatever the forces are in that environment is going to shape that critter because you haven't done anything to reduce yep. the tendency of those in the colony that are better adapted to outcompete those that are worse adapted. Exactly. So you're going to get exactly... Which, you know, which we, in quotes, uh, took advantage of in doing serial passaging research and, you know, gain of function research with regard to, you know, the intention was not uh, to to affect the ferrets there, uh, if it was ferrets or whatever it was, but actually specifically to enhance functionality and um, through uh, monitoring mutations and choosing which ones we liked in, for instance, viruses. Right. So, um we at the basic point is we selected for well presumably if what we seem to be able to infer from the nature of SARS-CoV-2 is the result of serial passaging in tissues and creatures presumably in Wuhan <coughs> those who ran those experiments were serially passaging them to create certain changes but they inevitably selected for other changes they weren't even thinking about like yes. adaptation to the laboratory environment mm -hmm. adaptation to be able to jump evolutionary gaps because they were running it through different yeah. creatures and tissues potentially and adaptation for very rapid change yeah you know rapid rapid variants for instance yeah yeah so anyway um i'm not sure how to sum all this up except to say that welcome to complex systems our environments will cause anything that has the characteristics of an evolving uh, lineage or creature to find the shape of the niche and inhabit it, which mm -hmm. means you need to be, you know, if you did want to fix the testing regime, if you did want to fix uh, pharma's um, uh, protocols, what you would have to do is disincentivize uh, rubber stamp protocols right. and incentivize the discovery of information that actually caused dangerous drugs not to emerge, caused people with COVID not to get on airplanes, um, those things. And it's not inconceivable that you could build those incentives. But the problem is that um, those with control tend to be those who are benefiting from the structure as it stands. And so you know, we saw this week, uh, I believe it was um, CDC recommending boosters for five-year-olds. Um, and in fact, <clears throat> uh, the absurdity of this has been described in public, but the basic point was the whole apparatus is set up to deliver that answer, which is why it delivered that answer, despite the fact that there's no real medical argument for it and a very strong argument against it. Um, and increasingly, like actually, even hitting the mainstream mainstream media, we have oh higher rates of COVID in fully boosted people than in you know so called fully vaccinated people, which like not boosted. So. Right. No, but um, look, the system is going to evolve. If you give incentives, you know, capture will create an incentive for those who are supposedly regulated to generate a 
the equivalent of a rubber stamp upstream of them. Mm -hmm. You should not be surprised when that rubber stamp rubber stamps things, right? Mm -hmm. You should expect that. And what we are dealing with is a captured system in which the shapes of these niches are all paradoxical because the purpose of those niches isn't to enhance the public's health. It's to do something else, right? Basically, yeah. you get... Um, regulators whose purpose is to enhance the well-being of the shareholders of the corporations that have captured the regulators, yep. right? Yep. Not surprising, right? Maddening, but not surprising. Indeed. Well, I think that wraps it up for today. Uh, we are going to be back next week at our normal time, and we will have a full Q&A then, so hold your questions until then. Uh, in the meantime, we had we will have a new episode out with guest uh, Brett hosting a guest on Tuesday and for you know for a number of Tuesdays to come. And this last week, we forgot to say at the top of the hour the Robert Malone episode. Yes, new, Robert right? Malone. New episode. Robert Malone episode. Uh, again, one you recorded in England. Yep. And I'm not sure what is going to be this Tuesday, but another great conversation that you had in England. Right. You can uh, find the Robert Malone one on Spotify. The All Dark right. Horse channel on Spotify. Yeah, because on YouTube, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's, that's pretty much where we are. So, uh, again, we encourage you to, if, if you liked this conversation, share it. And uh, come find come find a thriving Discord community by uh, joining either of our Patreons. And until next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.